the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. Praise to the God who reigns above. God had proven his steadfast love and mighty hand time and time again. God had brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. The Israelites were God's instrument of judgment on the peoples of Canaan. They fought and waged war on the inhabitants. After years of fighting, the war was over. The people could rest in all that God had promised them. Joshua and Eleazar were to be used to distribute the land by lot according to God's leading to the various tribes and families. Once given their land allotment, each tribe would be responsible for driving out the rest of the inhabitants of Canaan. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 14, verse 1. This morning we studied about how at the Last Supper he said, with great desire I have longed to share this feast with you. I can honestly say that it's with great longing I've waited for this chapter. It is such a cool chapter. Caleb is such a cool guy. So I hope you're excited tonight. I trust the Lord's going to speak to your heart. He spoke to my heart, so at least I got something out of it. But Joshua 14 is where we're at tonight. The whole theme of the book of Joshua is victory in Jesus, or the, you know, how we have lived that victorious Christian life. And the book of Joshua has taught us the keys to that victorious Christian life. And one of them was resting in Jesus' victory on the cross, the fact that he already won the victory. It's not a victory I have to win, but that he already won. But how do we do that? How do we rest in Christ's victory on the cross. Well, that's the purpose of the second section of the book of Joshua that began with chapter 13, when he begins to divide the land. And as individuals, they have to enter into the victory that was won when the war was accomplished. That's the purpose of this section, where the land will be divided to each tribe. Last week, we saw that resting in Christ's victory means trusting our lot to God, right? And we saw how at the beginning of chapter 14, it says, and these are the countries which the children of Israel, the borders that they inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers and the tribes of the children of Israel distributed for an inheritance to them. By lot was their inheritance, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine tribes and for the half tribe. That was the first key we saw. I mean, we need to trust our lot to God. We need to let him pick the land that we're going to be responsible for, for taking, that what he decides for us is best. Resting in that is how we begin to rest in Christ's victory. As we see what Caleb's inheritance is tonight, we're going to see another important principle to Christian rest, and it's living in light of God's promises. No matter how old you are, living in light of God's promises. So chapter 14, we begin in verse 3. 
and explains that, we'll start in verses 1 and 2, I'll just sum it up again. These were the individuals responsible for overseeing the distribution of the land. Eliezer, the high priest, because he had the Urim and the Thummim to confirm whatever the lot said. Joshua, as the impartial leader of the people, not representing any tribe, that he would be impartial as the leader. And then the heads of each tribe, they were all there for this drawing of lots. Now, the rabbis teach that there were two jars. One, one jar, you had each name of each, the name of each of the nine and a half tribes, and then the other jar had a section of land. And so they would match those two up, then they would check it out with Eliezer, who would confirm through the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what those were. You can go back to our study in, in Exodus to talk about that a little bit if you want to get a CD of that, or just listen on the radio. Eventually, we'll be in Exodus. So, but uh, either way, the point being that most people think it was a stone. White stone meant yes, black stone meant no. I don't know if that's the case. Whatever the Urim and the Thummim were, that he would confirm, yes, this is what God has chosen. This tribe gets this land. So that's how that would go. In verse 3, we see the tribes that did not receive any land in Canaan. For Moses had given, the reason it's only nine and a half, for Moses had given the inheritance of two tribes and a half tribe on the other side of Jordan, the east side, the Transjordan, modern day country of Jordan. But unto the Levites, he gave no inheritance among them. So here we see that another explanation is given of why only nine and a half tribes get the land of Canaan. And it explains the Levites situation a bit better in verse four. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Therefore, they gave no part unto the Levites in the land, except for cities to dwell in with their suburbs, and for their cattle and for their substance. So here we see that the Levites, it's not that they didn't get to live anywhere. They weren't just nomads. They had these suburbs, these cities to dwell in with their suburbs. Uh, The word suburb, we use this word to refer to an outlying district of a city, usually a residential area as compared to a, a downtown area. But this word, this Hebrew word, it means open land or pasture land. So they got these cities to live in. We'll learn later that there's 12 of them. Cities to live in, the Levitical cities. In these Levitical cities, they would have a little bit of pasture land around them. So the Levites, they might not be able to raise livestock or plant crops for their own monetary gain, but they were given land to grow the crops and to care for the livestock that Israel donated for their service at the tabernacle. That's how they survived. So they were given this land for that. So this is how all those who weren't currently serving would be supported. If you were serving in the tabernacle, well, you got a portion of the offerings that came every day, and that's how you ate. But if you weren't serving the tabernacle, because Levi's a big tribe, how did you live? Well, the donations that Israel brought, their offerings that they brought, they would get distributed to the Levites, and they would take the livestock or the crops, and they would grow them on these suburbs. They couldn't do it and then sell it for gain. Their focus was to be serving the Lord, but they could do it to care for their own needs. That just kind of clarifies here why we have nine and a half tribes getting land. And it explains in verse four, again, you might be saying, wait a second, nine and a half, two and a half, and Levites don't get any, that's 13 tribes. Correct. Because Joseph doesn't have a tribe. His sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are elevated to son status, and so they each get a portion. So technically, there are 13 tribes. It does appear that either Joseph had other sons or or other daughters, because there is a tribe of Joseph mentioned from time to time, but they're kind of swallowed up in Manasseh and Ephraim. So if you wonder, you say, well, is there 14? No, but technically, sometimes other descendants of Joseph are mentioned. So Anyway, uh, that's a little bit of a sidetrack, but hopefully it explains. Verse 5, Joshua's obedience to the Lord. As the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they 
divided the land. So remember, God had come to Joshua at the beginning of chapter 13 and said, Joshua, you put this off long enough, divide the land. And Joshua gets right to work after God speaks to him. At this point, what would seem natural is to see, well, which tribe is picked first, right? See which one gets what land. Well, while they're getting ready to do that, to divide the land, a contingent from Judah led by Caleb interrupts the proceedings. Look at verse six. And this is where it just starts getting fun. It says, then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, you know the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and you in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses sware on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon your feet have trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. This contingent from Judah comes up with Caleb at its head, and he goes, Time out! Ain't nobody taking nothing from any bulls. Joshua, I know you haven't forgotten what Moses told you and me. We're the only two people left alive from that time. I know you haven't forgotten that. You can't start this whole dividing lot process without dealing with me first. Caleb, he seems a little bit like a go-getter, a bit of an alpha guy. But the cool part here is how he explains it. When he says to him, he goes, you, thou knowest, you know the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God concerning me and you in Kadesh Barnea. He says, hold the phone, Joshua. You can't do this just yet. You know full well that God made you and me a promise because we were the only two faithful men from our generation. And then Caleb explains that faithfulness in verses seven and eight. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is right on the edge of the promised land. It's right on the edge when Israel's about to go in from the south originally. Kadesh Barnea is way in the south. And that's how originally they were gonna go in and invade the land. So Joshua and Caleb were two of those 12 spies picked out to get the lay of the land before they went in. And he says, when I came back, he says, I brought him word again it was in my, as it was in my heart. But nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me, the other 10 spies, they made the heart of the people melt. They discouraged the people from trusting God. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. Now that phrase, wholly followed, it's two words. And it means to walk behind and then filled to the brim. In other words, what Caleb is saying here is, I walked behind God so closely that you can't walk any more close behind God. I followed him right in his steps, filled to the brim. Caleb walked as close behind God as he could get. He didn't lag behind. He didn't look to the side, the left or the right, in even the slightest way. Why did Caleb do that? Why did he stay so close to the Lord during this difficult time? Well, he explains. I wholly followed the Lord, my God, my God. We did the first 12 chapters. We looked at everything from a national perspective. We looked at everything from the nation of Israel, trusting God, trusting God as they marched around Jericho seven times, trusting God for the walls to come down, trusting God for the planet AI, trusting God to march overnight and to attack the coalition from the south that had attacked Gibeon. All these various things, they had trusted God as a nation. But now as we're getting into chapter 13 through the rest of the book, we begin to focus on the individual again. And so Caleb says, 
I followed, wholly followed the Lord, my God. See, the Lord just wasn't Israel's God. He was Caleb's God. When we spent all that time talking about all the land that the other two and a half tribes got on Jordan, we explained, I got on the other side, Jordan, we explained that the reason why was because Joshua wanted it to be clear that even though a river was going to separate these nine and a half tribes and the other two and a half, that there was still one nation. Even though we discussed the unity of God's people earlier, that doesn't negate that we all have an individual relationship with God. It doesn't negate that fact. Often we'll read in the Old Testament of people telling God's prophets, pray to the Lord your God. Saul did that with Samuel when he was all worried about how everything would look and whatever. He would say, pray to the Lord your God that you know, God will favor me and the people will trust me and this and that. I always read that and I wonder, Saul, why, don't, why aren't you praying to the Lord your God? <laughs> or why don't you ask Samuel to pray to the Lord my God? Why is it your God? See, Saul had a long distance relationship with God. Caleb had a close, intimate relationship with God. And that brings up the question, do you and I, do I have a close, intimate relationship with God? You say, well, how do I do that? Well, how does any relationship grow? You have to spend time together. Talk to him, prayer. Listen to him, read your Bible. It's a two-way conversation. Frequently, my devotion time, I spend time talking to the Lord about what I'm reading, talking to the Lord about what's going on in my life, talking to the Lord what's going on in other people's lives. And then I'll read some more and then I'll talk to the Lord some more and I'll read some more and talk to the Lord some more. That's how we we get to know the Lord better and we deepen our relationship with him. And then, of course, we respond to him. We act on what we've read. We apply it to our lives. And when you do that, like Caleb, your love for him can grow and you will stay closer to him. Not because, ooh, I shouldn't go, there's a boundary there, but because you love him. Because you want to please him. You don't want to break his heart. You don't want to do what Judas did to Jesus when Jesus at the end of the Last Supper, he says, even though this awesome thing we're celebrating tonight and I'm going to do an awesome thing on the cross, behold, the hand of him who's about to betray me is at the table. He was heartbroken over that. So if we will spend time with the Lord, talking to him through prayer, listening to him by reading his word and then responding to him by acting on what we read, our relationship with God will deepen and we'll stay closer to him. Now, because of this faithfulness, Moses makes a special promise to Caleb according to verse 9. Verse 9, And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon your feet have trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. When I first read this, I thought to myself, I don't remember any record of any special promise from Moses. I don't. And when I did the research... In the scripture, I found that there wasn't, with this exception. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 35 and 36. It doesn't seem like much when we read it now, but I want you to, as we read this now, I want you to think of what he just said here in verse 9, okay? So Joshua 14, 9, keep in mind what that verse says with what we're about to read here in Deuteronomy 1, 35 and 36. Moses says, to the nation of Israel. In verse 35, Deuteronomy 1, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swore to give unto your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he has trodden upon, and to his children, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Now, does that language sound very similar to Joshua 14.9? 
It's quote verbatim. You know, it's funny because there are people who be like, do you really think the Bible's speaking literally in a lot of things? Yes. And Caleb's a good example of someone else who thought that way. He directly quotes by word everything that Moses promised him when he brings his issue to Joshua here. He says, Joshua, you know what Moses told me. This is what he told me. He says in here, verse 9, Surely the land your feet have trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever. He goes on and he says, verse 10, And now, behold, which means check this out. Actually, it means check me out. Check me out. The Lord has kept me alive, just like he said, these 40 and five years. Even since the Lord spoke this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day, King James says, fourscore and five years old. That means he's 85 years old. And as yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. He says, Joshua, Moses made me a direct promise. And I am not deviating from even a word of it. And if you think I'm not ready for it, check me out. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to go to war. I'm ready to take whatever land that God has given to me. I won't back down. And I'm not worried about how it's going to turn out. Just like God promised, here I am. I survived the 40 years in the desert of unbelief, and I survived this five-year war in Canaan too. And even better, I'm just as strong as I was when God made that promise, so I'll survive whatever's out, every enemy's left out there to defeat. And at this point, I just want to send you out there and say, go take the land God gave you. I mean, what a fiery guy. What an amazing guy. He says, so guess what, Joshua? I'm not waiting for the land distribution for my tribe. I want the specific land that Moses promised me, the specific piece of land that Moses promised me. Verse 12. Now, therefore, give me this mountain whereof the Lord spoke in that day. And this is the point where Caleb kind of loses me. What mountain? (laughs) What mountain are you talking about, Caleb? What in the world is Caleb addressing here? Moses didn't mention any mountain. The word there for mountain, it means hill country, okay? What hill country is Caleb talking about? In fact, at this point, we might be tempted to say to Caleb, you may be still strong, Caleb, but you're growing senile. God didn't promise you any hill country, or did he? Turn with me to Numbers 13, verse 17. This is 45 years earlier on that day when Caleb was selected to be one of the spies. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain, the hill country, and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be of a good courage and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. And so they went up, and they searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob as men come to Hamath. And they ascended by the south, and they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the children of Anak, lived. Now Hebron, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. We read that they came into the brook of Eskol and 
right down there at the bottom of that hill country of Hebron. And they cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they carried it between two people upon a staff. And they brought it the pomegranates of the figs. And the place was called Eshkol because of the cluster of the grapes where the children of Israel cut down from there. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. This area up here that we have on the map, Hebron is right there. If you look at the Dead Sea and you go straight west, you go straight west is the hill country where the city of Hebron is, the city of giants. Children of Anak lived there. They came up from the south and Moses told them to get into the hilly country, that area where Hebron was, because there they would get a good lay of all the land. And so they did. They went up there. They were able to spy out all the cities. They were able to see the giants. They were able to go down into the valley and find out that it was a good land. It had awesome fruit in it. Hebron was the hilly region where the spies did their reconnaissance. It's there that they encountered the giants. They saw the walled cities. And it's there that the 10 spies decided to dissuade the people. And it's there that Caleb got excited for all God was going to do. There's an important phrase in Moses' promise in Deuteronomy 1.36. He says, The land whereon your feet have trodden is yours, Caleb. The phrase, the land whereon your feet has trodden, literally means the ground your feet walked on. That ground is yours. Hebron was the ground that Caleb's feet walked on. The ground he never got to take 45 years ago because the people wanted to stone him instead of be inspired by his faith. Caleb says, oh, no, 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 Joshua. You're not dipping into any bowls. You're not doing anything. You're not just giving me any land. I was promised Hebron, so you need to give it to me. Now, why was it so important that Caleb got that land? When we go back to Joshua 14, verse 12, he says, Now therefore give me this mountain, that hill country of Hebron that was promised to him, where the Lord spoke in that day. Why? Why was it so important to him? He says, For you heard in that day, you were there, Joshua, you heard in that day how the Anakims were there and that the cities were so great and they were fenced and walled. You heard all of the unbelief. You heard all of the discouraging words. Can you imagine how discouraging and disheartening it was for Caleb on that day to come back excited about all God would do and to find that these other 10 men had betrayed their call, had betrayed their hopes, and then turned the heart of the people to the point that they were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb when they tried to persuade them otherwise? That day, 45 years ago, marked the only time in Caleb's life that he had to follow God from a distance, and it wasn't by his choice. It was because others wouldn't join him in walking closely with the Lord. You see, Caleb had unfinished business with Hebron. He had unfinished business that had been delayed for 45 years with Hebron. And Caleb tells Joshua, he goes, I know you remember. I know you haven't forgotten. You and me alone are alive from that day to remember the whining about the giants and the walled cities. Don't tell me you haven't been waiting 45 years long to take Hebron not a day goes by that I haven't. And I look at this guy and he is not me. I have fire, but not like this. Can you imagine this 85-year-old man who's still itching for a fight? I mean, seriously, I'm 44. And as my days go on, I'm, I'm looking for more ways I can rest. Caleb, he's 85 and he's itching for a fight. He's still frustrated by the spiritual failure of his peers that affected him so horribly. He's still wanting to finish the job God sent him to do. 
And none of the victories that Israel had so far had satisfied that because those were national victories. This was an individual victory that Caleb had been denied. This was an unfulfilled promise right at his fingertips. And he says, you're not giving me just any land, Joshua. I want this land like God promised me. And so he says, if so be that the Lord will be with me, then guess what? I will be able to drive them out just like the Lord said. Caleb revealed his heart and trust in God's promises. He had waited for over 45 years to have the chance to receive his inheritance. At the age of 85, Caleb was ready to fight the giants that were in his way. We can have this same confidence that Caleb had to be absolutely sure that God is who he says he is, to be sure of his promises and rely on his leading. We will never know how everything works out, but we don't have to. All we must do is trust and obey, knowing if God is for us, who can stand against us? If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.